He is a founder of the Financial Psychology Institute and a managing principal of your mental wealth advisors. Brad Klontz was awarded the Innovative Practice Presidential Citation from the American Psychological Association for his application of psychological interventions to help people with money and wealth issues. Brad has been a columnist for the journal Financial Planning on Wall Street and psychologytoday.com and has co-authored five books on the psychology of money. His work has been featured on ABC News 2020, Good Morning America, USA Today, Money Magazine, NPR, and many other media outlets. Meet the leaders shaping the new era of credit. This is the Vantage Core Podcast. Today, we talk to Brad Klontz, award-winning financial therapist and advisor. I have a weird career, right? So anytime I say I'm a financial psychologist, I usually get, what the heck is that? I've never heard of that before. So that, that's usually something people don't know because they've never heard of it before. I grew up in Howell, Michigan. So I was born in Farmington Hills and I was raised in the suburbs of Detroit. I have a uh, sister who's two years younger who lives in Chicago, Illinois. So I grew up, we didn't have much money. So my mom says we were middle-class except lower. And I'm, I'm always like, well, they have words for that mom. <laughs> but I don't think she was really happy about that when she was growing up. So she, she grew up being very much aware of people who had money and people who didn't have money. So I think as a child, I was really cued in to the fact that it seems to be better to have money than not have money. I recently took my son skiing for the first time over here in Colorado, where I recently moved. And I was just really struck with all these memories from childhood because my father used to take me to the ski hill. It was Mount Brighton in Michigan. And we would just watch people ski. And he thought he was exposing me to this new world. And even as a kid, I was like, well, why can't I ski? Like, why can't we ski? And I think at that moment, my father was pretty embarrassed and said, well, we couldn't afford it. So I was always really attuned to this, the haves and the have nots, and and just really curious about why my really intelligent, hardworking family for generations never seemed to get ahead. And so as a child, I was really sort of tuned into that. It's probably one of the reasons I became a psychologist is trying to sort that out in my own life. So I had to borrow about $100,000 to get through school. I decided to become a clinical psychologist. I had some sports scholarships in undergrad that helped, but I had to borrow money for my master's and my doctorate. And I got out of school. I owed $100,000 in student loan debt. And I was very anxious about that. I was raised with this mindset, like never borrow money, never owe anyone money. Debt is a bad thing. And so I was pretty anxious about it. I saw a friend of mine make $100,000 in one year trading stocks. And I thought, well, this is a brilliant strategy for me to get out of debt. So I sold what I had of value, which for me primarily at that time was a truck. I bought a $500 car, drove that, and I started trading with the money. And I had a fabulous three or four months. I was really excited about it. I thought I had stumbled on my way of getting out of debt and possibly even becoming wealthy. And then the dot-com bubble burst about three to four months into it. I started to watch my money disappear. It was just a terrible feeling, right? I felt stupid. I couldn't believe I would do this. The, the emotions were intense. And that's when I really got interested in financial psychology. I started to do lit reviews around the psychology of money and why do we do what we do? And I couldn't find anything in the psychological literature. And I think that's what really sent me on my search of self-discovery. And now it's become a career. I try to talk about it with my kids. I try to share with them. We're buying a house right now. And my, my son has all these questions about, are you losing money if you buy a house? And so even last night, he was, we were, I was talking about the differences between an asset purchase and a liability purchase. And, but I think one of the primary things we do is we use allowance as a tool to teach personal finance. So 
A big mistake a lot of parents make is just giving their child money without strings attached and then being concerned about how they're managing it and how they're spending it. I think a great strategy is to think about how you want to pass down your values to your kids by structuring an allowance. And so for my children, you know, they can spend some, they have to save some, they invest some, and some they give away. And so we put it in different little buckets because my wife and I said, and we thought about like, what is it we want them to know about money? What values do we want to pass down to them? And so we're using their allowance to instill those values. So I've got a seven-year-old and a three-year-old. We haven't started allowance with the three-year-old yet. I think it's a good idea to do it once your kids start to become conscious about money. And so for me, I think it was around kindergarten. That's when we started to do it. So I, I got out of grad school. I became extremely curious about that once I stumbled on my own issues around money. I went home. I started interviewing my parents, my mother. I sat down with my father. And they had been through this before since I was studying to be a psychologist. So I, I got really specific. Mom, what was it like for you growing up? And what stories? And I, all these stories that went back for generations started to emerge. And all of a sudden, my behaviors around money made perfect sense. So for example, I found out that my grandfather lost all of his money in the Great Depression when the banks collapsed as a young man. And very traumatic experience, if you think about it, going to the bank and all of a sudden all your money's gone and, and you can't even get anyone to talk to you. What I didn't know is that he never put a dollar in the bank the rest of his life. So he passed away in his 90s and kept all his money in a lockbox in the attic, which is pretty intense. So now all of a sudden my mother's anxiety around money and her concern around it all started to make sense to me. And then me trying to do something like the opposite of what my family did. And so I, I call it a dysfunctional pendulum swing where I did the exact opposite and I took all this massive risk just realizing I'm playing out this entire family script, this money script that's been going back for generations was really profound in my life. And I've actually done a lot of my professional work and research related to that with larger groups of people and studying that. So what we found in our research is that your beliefs around money, which are typically inherited, so you got them from your parents or your grandparents or the culture you grew up in, the socioeconomic class you grew up in, these things have a profound impact on our life. And so our studies have found that our beliefs around money predict our income, our net worth, our credit card debt, and a whole host of financial behaviors. So they're extremely powerful. So a huge part of financial psychology for me is helping people really come to terms with what are these beliefs that are driving your behaviors? Because your outcomes are a direct result of your psychology and your upbringing around money. Did you grow up in a lower socioeconomic group, middle class, upper class? Certain religious groups have different beliefs around money, political groups. We all have different beliefs around money, depending on whatever tribe you're in. And um, certainly true with different countries, like the savings rates in, for example, like Japan are so much higher than they are in the United States. I mean, which really tells me there's a cultural difference there around how important it is to save for the future. So as part of my interviewing with my father, my father has a PhD in psychology also. Now, what's interesting is I got my doctorate first. He was a high school teacher when I was growing up, but he owned a treatment center by the time I got out of school. And he ran a lot of programs on helping people with mental health issues. And so one of the things we did a few months after I had that experience, we met a financial advisor who was really curious around the psychology of money. We created a program at his treatment center to help people deal with their money issues. We called it a healing money issues program. And so that launched in 2002. And um, I started studying the effectiveness of that program. There was a Wall Street Journal reporter who came and, and watched the program. Later, it was on ABC 2020. So the thing kind of blew up because I think there was this gap around 
people are stressed about money. Like money is the number one source of stress in the lives out of eight out of 10 Americans. The field of psychology had pretty much ignored it. And so there was this huge need for people to really get tools and understanding and theory to sort out our relationship with money, for which most of us have a strained one and an anxious one. So I think there was a, a lot of need for it. And so I think that the field of psychology was initially somewhat reluctant to embrace it. And we've done some studies on that too. And therapists have a tendency to be somewhat money avoidant. Of course, not all of them, but when we do studies on large groups of people, compare them to business people, a therapist would be more likely to have sort of a negative association with money. Like, you know, we're here to help people. It's not about making money, that kind of mindset. And so I think the field had some resistance initially, but then the great recession hit and psychologists are in their office and they're dealing with people with all this stress, just the constant flow of stress. And I think I saw a shift culturally with an interest in the psychology of money and our relationship with money around that time. I know when I'm working with people, I'm really curious about their upbringing around money. So in that sense, it can be similar to therapy. It's not necessarily treating a disorder though. So I wouldn't look at it with that medical lens. It's more like a focus on what your relationship with money. So for most of us, these money scripts, totally outside of our conscious awareness, because we don't really talk about money. You and I are talking about money right now, but it's a topic that's taboo in our culture. People feel a lot of shame about it. Shame, I have too little. Shame, I have too much. We don't really talk about it much. So there's not a lot of opportunity for us to really dive deep into our own understanding of our relationship with money. It's really fascinating. And I think it comes down to our tribal brain. So one of the ways to really understand how we interact with money is to think about a cave person brain, because this is how our brain has evolved for like 99% of our history as a species. We were living in small tribes of about 100 or 150 people. We were constantly worried about our survival. And part of that survival really depended on the opinions of everyone else in that tribe. So I think it's sort of this false idea that there's something wrong with you or you're shallow if you're worried about what other people think. Everybody's worried about what everyone else thinks. And this is part of our biology. It's part of what allowed us to survive. And so I think the shame comes about because we're very acutely aware of what we see other people having or not having. And so we're worried that we have more than they do and we feel bad about it, or we have less than they do and we feel bad about it. And then when you see social media, it just makes it so much worse. Like social media, if you want to feel bad about yourself, just go on Instagram right now and you can see people who are just living a much better life than you. You know, couples that are actually smiling at each other, you know, while here you are, you're in a fight with your, with your partner or people that um, are sitting there all by themselves reading a book and you're at home dealing with these angry children. <laughs> so social media works like that. And so it, it does it with wealth too. So you see all this stuff being thrown at you about people on vacations and having watches and cars. It, it creates this sense of deprivation. Relative deprivation is what we call it in psychology. And our satisfaction with life is not based on an objective reality. It's not based on a certain amount of money you get in your retirement or your checking account. It is entirely based on how we feel compared to other people, relative to other people. And so when we see people having experiences or stuff that we don't have, it creates a sense of deprivation in us and we feel bad about ourselves. And a part of that is shame. I think people are fairly conscious of the stress around money. And a lot of that stress comes from a disconnect between our values and our behaviors. And so part of the shame around money is that we all know what we should be doing around money. Like the problems in the United States aren't a lack of financial literacy. Like I think financial literacy is really important, but people don't really, you know, 
people not knowing the difference between a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA, this isn't the problem. Like the two big problems we have in the United States, not saving for the future and spending more than we make. And I'm just going to make the argument that people already know better. You know, you're not going to surprise somebody with this, hey, you should be saving and not spending more than you make. I mean, people already know they should be doing that, yet those are our biggest problems. And I think that compounds the shame because we're embarrassed because we know we're not doing what we should be doing. And a lot of times that's living sort of out of integrity with our own values and our own goals. I think that financial education is sorely missing in our culture and in our schools. And back when I went to school, they had a class called home economics, and it actually involved some economics. And so we were taught how to do a checkbook, how to balance a checkbook. A lot of that has been totally stripped from schools. And so we are living in a time where it's more important than ever for individuals to know what they're supposed to be doing around money. And essentially having a basic money mindset around it's important to save for the future. The fact that I need to save for the future if I want to take care of myself financially. And one of the big tragedies I see is that as a culture, what we did is we sort of had a tribe. And then what we did is we offloaded the tribe's responsibilities to take care of ourselves when we get older to society. And we offloaded those to companies, pensions, like a pension used to be something that existed. (laughs) And it was fabulous because you didn't need to worry about your future. So for my grandfather's generation, they got pensions at work. So they never had to save a dime for the retirement. This wasn't part of their consciousness. That was all being taken care of by social security, by their company. And what's happened as a culture is that we have taken those pensions away and we basically put you taking care of yourself financially directly on your shoulders, but we never really got the memo, you know? And I think as a culture and as in our educational system, we're way behind on educating kids around the fact that if you want to be comfortable as you age and in retirement, you ha- it's a hundred percent on you to take care of yourself. And, I, and if we train kids and young people that as soon as they get out of college, they they have this mindset where they're going to save 10 or 20 or 30% of their income for retirement. We would have um, you know, a whole culture of millionaires. It actually doesn't take that much if you have that habit in place at a young age. And so we have to start training our children to do that. COVID has, has been essentially, I would say, almost an economic financial trauma for the entire country and probably the entire world. And so what happens with a traumatic experience like that is, is you think you're doing everything right. You think things are going well, and all of a sudden you get blindsided with a smack to the head. And this was a really powerful one because you might have been doing everything right. Like I think about some friends of mine who own restaurants, and you know, a lot of restaurants are always living like month to month, but some people had some cash reserves. You know, they they had some money set aside three months even or six months of payroll in some cases because they really wanted to make sure they could weather a storm in case something happened. Nobody was prepared. For this. And I don't think there was any way to prepare for this. So I think that there's a really traumatic experience that's, that's happened to a lot of industries and a lot of states. I know it hit some states more than others, but I think it, there's going to be a, um, a lasting effect probably for decades in terms of this trauma around what's happening with money. Like, for example, we saw that with the Great Depression. There was an entire generation of hoarders that resulted from that because they had this experience of not having enough money and the, the existential threat that that entails. And so I think we're experiencing something like that right now. Now, we've been through economic crises before, and we're always going to go through them. But this one had that added fear of it actually killing you. So it's not like you're just going to lose your job, which is terrible, or your business, which is horrible, but you might actually die. And I think that's what made really turned up the heat on the anxiety of this experience for us. One of the benefits of a traumatic experience, and there's a whole line of research related to this called post-traumatic growth. 
And so that's what we're hoping to see. We're hoping that on the other side of this, we're stronger, we're more conscientious. I know a lot of people are looking at you know multiple streams of income just in case they lose a job. I know that some people have taken advantage of this opportunity slash tragedy to, to start a business, start an online business. I know a lot of stories about people who've been able to diversify their income sources and have found ways to kind of get on top of it and actually improve themselves. So I think there, there is those opportunities. But a big part of that too is having to deal with the, the grief of what you're going through and, and sort of processing that whole thing so that you can be stronger and wiser on the other side. And I have seen some data that people are putting more emphasis on saving. Now everybody knows why you need an emergency fund. Before it was more of a theoretical thing, like, oh, everybody should have an emergency fund, but not everyone had experienced an emergency. I think as a culture, many of us have experienced an emergency and decreases in income or job loss. And so my hope on the other side of this is that we have a little bit more anxiety around money. And and a lot of our studies have found that having some vigilance around money, like some concern about the future, having some of that future orientation, you know, worrying about having money saved in case you need it. Like those beliefs and that behavior pattern is associated with people who have higher net worth and higher income. And so my hope is that on the other side of this, we're all a bit more conscientious and more vigilant around taking care of ourselves financially. So in our studies, we found four main money categories. And what we did is we collected beliefs around money over the course of about a decade, working with hundreds and hundreds of people. We put it into an instrument. We then administered it to thousands. Now it's been tens of thousands of people. And we found four different distinct money mindsets. And so the first one we found, we call it money avoidance. And this is where we have a negative association with money. So rich people are greedy, money corrupts, there's virtue in living with less money. Probably no big surprise, but if you have a negative association with money, it's correlated with having less income, less net worth, and even worse than that, self-destructive financial behaviors. Because if you have this unconscious aversion thinking money's bad. And and a lot of times this is because it'll separate you from your tribe. So people would judge you harshly if you have more than they do. A lot of that, a lot of times this underlies that, of course, it's going to be bad for your financial life and you're going to sabotage yourself. Another category we found is what we call money worship beliefs. And this is the belief that more money and more stuff is going to solve all your problems and it's going to make you happy. And I think this is sort of the average American. Like we are very consumer focused. We're always looking for that next thing to buy looking for that you know, dopamine rush around buying it, feeling better. And of course, it's not a lasting effect, right? So it can become this habit that isn't good for us, this belief that all this stuff is going to make us happy. So no big surprise, that's not associated with good net worth or, or higher income either. The third category we found is what we call money status beliefs. What's so fascinating about this, it's sort of the keeping up with the Joneses effect. And so money status is where you're really linking your self-worth with your net worth, If somebody asked you how much money you made, you'd say you make more than you do, which is really interesting. So I want to show you this sense of status I have. I won't buy something unless it's new or it's considered the best. Now, what's interesting about this is when you go on social media, this is the sort of the false narrative about wealthy people is you see them with their Rolex watch and leaning up against a luxury car. That's actually not how most millionaires spend. And there's been a lot of research done on this. That is a false narrative about how most wealthy people get wealthy and how they spend. So that money status belief also associated with like growing up in a lower socioeconomic situation and self-destructive financial behaviors. The fourth category is what we call money vigilance. Ironically, this is the wealthier people. And if you ask them how much they make, they say they're more likely to tell you they make less than they actually do. So it's actually the opposite. So they're not flashing their money. They're actually very much focused on saving. 
And so it's important to save for a rainy day. I'd be a nervous wreck if I didn't have money saved for an emergency. So there's this real focus on saving and investing as a part of their strategy and their money mindset. And quite frankly, that's how people become wealthy. Wealthy essentially means that you have net worth. And if you're not saving for the future, and if you're not future-oriented, of course, you're not going to do what it takes right now to have that later. The views and opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of VantageScore Solutions. This podcast is brought to you by VantageScore Solutions, a higher level of confidence. Thanks for listening. 